Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, during the pandemic, lots of us have had a chance to stop and reflect. And for some leaders, that means they've really paused and asked questions about what am I doing and why am I doing it? And am I focused on the right things? For some other leaders, well, we just won't comment about them today. What I'm interested in is who are those leaders that have stopped it to reflect and have made changes? What have they learned after that reflection? And what does it say for the rest of us as leaders of teams and as leaders of our organization? Now, fortunately, to answer that question, my guest today has done a brilliant job. So my guest is Athal Duncan, who is an international executive coach and the chair of the Black Isle Group, which is a leadership performance development specialist group with some very interesting technology to back up their process as well. Um, Athal is certified by INSEAD, and he has studied leadership at both Harvard and Cranfield. Not only that, but he's a former journalist and television producer working for the BBC News for more than 20 years. And for today's show, what he has done is interview about 30 leaders from all walks of life during lockdown, published in a new book called Leaders in Lockdown, Inside Stories of COVID-19 and the New World of Business. So, Athal, welcome to the show. Wanda, I'm delighted to be with you and really looking forward to the conversation. Can't wait to get going and get into these juicy issues that you're talking about. (laughs) So am I, because these are fascinating stories. Now, before I dive into it, I always have to ask the question, why? So why did you start this work of interviewing all of these leaders? Well, I think it was probably a moment of uh, personal reflection myself. And if I take you back to March 2020, um, I was walking along the beach near my house very early one morning. I was pretty stressed because all the businesses that I am involved in were in some degree of crisis or jeopardy because the pandemic had just hit and the lockdown had just started. Um, And I was reflecting on what it all meant. And I think I realized that this was probably the seminal moment um, of this century, perhaps. Uh, And society and business were at a crossroads. And as you said in your intro, you know, I am a storyteller. And, you know, I came from my BBC background and I wanted to capture the moment. And I I think maybe if you were were coaching me at that point, Wanda, you would say it was some kind of um, distraction from the anxiety that I was having um, about the various businesses that I'm involved in. But I set out on this Leaders in Lockdown project, and here we are today. Yeah. So you didn't start with the intention of writing a book, or did you? You were just thinking, capture what are other people experiencing? I wanted to capture the stories, and the most obvious way of doing that was through a book. Okay. But it's actually ended up rolling out into a bit of a, a project of change, Um, You know, and I think I've become an evangelist for how I believe that business and society should change as we come out of the pandemic. 
All right. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that one. Tell me, um, before I seal the punchline, tell me a tad bit about the kind of leaders that you interviewed. Big companies, small companies, global. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, a lot of big companies um, and, you know, right across the world. So leaders in Asia, the chief executive of Hong Kong and Shanghai Hotels, the chief executive of one of the largest owners of uh, commercial real estate in China and in Hong Kong. Um, across into Europe, the chief, chief executive of a large insurance group, Zurich Insurance Group, into the UK, the heart-wrenching story of the leadership of one of the UK's largest care home companies who lost a 1,000 residents uh, who died because of COVID in the short time that I was working with them, including many of their colleagues. And then in the, in the US, um, chief executive of the New York Times, chief executives in tech companies, chief executives um, of the um, oldest auctioneering house uh, in America. So a whole range. Uh, and, you know, um, one of the characters of the New York um, advertising world as well, um, who had plenty to say about this moment, this remarkable moment that we were going through a year ago, and indeed we're still going through now. Yeah. It's, um, I have to say, there's fascinating stories, um, all of these, and a lot of them. It's, um, I didn't count them, but I'm guessing there's 30-some stories in this book, and each of them with their kind of own dramatic moment and dramatic insights. So, and I love the way you've organized the book. So there's different themes and kind of um, a bit of the theme around what people took away, you know, the role of purpose, the ways we work and how that might change, um, some stuff on inequality, some stuff on global cooperation, resilience, supply chain, maximizing potential. And those are just the big themes. They certainly don't get any of the sub themes. And it's an interesting way of thinking how all these executives reflecting on this moment in time. Yeah, and, you know, we came up with the seven big themes, which were really what was common uh, between most of the people we talked to. But the other thing that was remarkable was getting this access. You know, these people were hunkered down in their kitchens. You know, executives who are used to being busy, 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 traveling the world, and they were stuck there in their kitchens or in their dining rooms. And I got this remarkable access at this moment that I would never have got in normal times. It would have taken months to get in front of these people. Uh, and they wanted to share their stories. They wanted, it was almost as if they were witnesses to, you know, a terrible accident um, or a terrible moment. And that they wanted to talk to people about it. And I suppose it also revealed a bit of the loneliness of uh, senior leadership. Many of these people, you know, have created themselves billion-dollar companies. And these billion-dollar companies were lying in ruins, were lying in tatters um, at this moment. So that, that was, you know, from the executive coaches point of view, why these people spoke, why they wanted to speak, why they wanted to pour their hearts and their thoughts out was, I think, very revealing as well. Yeah. And I can imagine for executives who are used to feeding on the energy of watching the buzz of the business, you know, the buzz of the clients, the interaction with the clients, seeing the business churn, even if they're more introverted characters, 
they're still observing that and feeling great. We're doing good things. And suddenly there's no chance to observe and it's, it changes, you know, how you're thinking and what you're doing. At least that's what I see with my chief executives. Absolutely. And they, and, and at this moment, they were trying to understand where is this going to go? And, and they were kind of reaching out to me and, you know, what are the other people telling you, Athel? Mm-hmm. You know, is there anything we can, we can get from them that we can learn and try and, when we talk about sense making, how can we make sense of this, this moment, this, right. you know, particularly stressful and difficult moment for not just for business, but for the, hu- for the human race. For human race, right. Um, I think the other thing that gives me heart in these stories and in what I've seen is the notion that these leaders believe that they can't just continue to run their businesses, that they operate within a society, and that society has problems in a variety of places, and that they need to start providing some solutions for those larger social problems. I think that's a good sign for all of us. And those those seem to reflect in many of the stories that you tell, a concern about the broader issues. Yeah, and... um... Hugely, hugely, these people were um, aware of purpose, purpose in their own personal lives, their their own legacy, and what this was doing to their to their own legacy, what it told them about the choices they had made, and they were, I think, universally disappointed by the way that politicians were dealing with the crisis, where wherever they were in the world. And they saw that need for the corporate world to step in and to build consensus where politicians were seen to be causing division. And that was particularly, I think, around um, widening inequality and it was around the global cooperation. And and let's face it, it it was the, the big corporates, the big farmers, farmers who stepped in to get this vaccine going and solved in such a remarkably short period of time. And it was the big tech companies who collaborated around the the track and trace in many parts of the world. Um, And, you know, long may that continue. Yeah. Long may that continue. A lot of hope. I know everybody doesn't agree with me on this statement, but I personally feel a lot of hope when businesses start to recognize that they exist in a larger social ecosystem and that they have to address some of the issues because those are going to impact their businesses ultimately. So I'm encouraged about that as both. I know not everybody agrees with me. All right now, I'm going to do something I never do, Athal. I'm going to jump to the punchline. I never okay. do this one, but I want to ask you straight up. For anybody who's impatient, just wants to know what's the punchline? What's the punchline? You talk well, to all those executives. The punchline for me is uh, this is a once in a generation moment to reset the way we do business and reset society. And we should not let it pass. And in order to create that reset, um, we need um, a new kind of leadership. Um, or to, we need the kind of um, strong leadership that we saw from so many in the crisis we, we need to see that in more normal times. And what, what is that? It's leadership that delivers with agility and at pace. It's leadership, as we've just said, which puts purpose first. 
Um, it's a leadership which is empowering, empathetic, listening, and a leadership that's effective in this new world of work, this new hybrid mixed world of work, you know, whatever that uh, may be. And a lot of the conversations that I have at the moment, Wanda, is what do you want to hold on to yeah. from the last year and what do you want to leave behind? Um, and many people tell me they want to leave behind uh, the, the world of command and control, uh, a world that focused on presenteeism for some leaders rather than the results. And as um, Marion Salzman, who was that um, advertising executive who I referred to earlier on, who I think somebody once called um, a cross between Carrie Bradshaw and Hillary Clinton, um, she said, we need to put humanity back into leadership, humanity back into leadership. These are themes Many of us who do this as a profession, advising leaders have been saying for years, you know, the agility, the pace, the purpose, the sense of purpose and meaning, the empowering, empathy, listening, um, some hybrid models of how we get work done, leaving behind the notion of presenteeism um, and humanity. I mean, that genuine sense of I care for people and not just people who are a lot like me, people who are often quite different than me in many ways. Uh, and I'm hopeful if these are the lessons we actually take away and go implement in the coming years, that will be fabulous in many ways. All right. So let's dive into the, some of the stories. Um, one of the stories that I particularly liked was Mark Thompson at the New York times. Tell me about this story. Tell me what happened. So Mark is a leader who I have a great respect for. We worked together um, at the BBC um, Mark told me that uh, he had to go into the New York Times offices to do his earning call from a secure uh, phone. And uh, he loves his uh, Brompton fold-up bicycle. Uh, and when he got in there, I think there's normally about 5,000 people in that building. And when he got in there, there, there was only 20 security guards um, keeping the place safe. And Mark decided to take a cycle around the building on his Brompton fold-up bicycle. Um, and he, he, he thought it looked very peculiar through the vast savannas of the New York Times newsroom. And he commented that it looked like it was an empty milking parlor where these people came every day to plug themselves in to their work um, until it was time to go home and face, you know, the unpleasant commute back to wherever their homes are. And, and he thought, this is not the best way to engender creativity and collaboration in my business. Should I sell my skyscraper? He said to me. And he concluded that he'll hold on to the New York Times skyscraper, but he needed to completely rethink the engagement between the employee, between the worker and the workplace. Interesting. Um, we did a podcast a few weeks ago with Chris Kane, who is a real estate specialist and including worked at the BBC. Maybe you crossed paths with him at that time. And um, his argument is that we create office buildings that are for the convenience of the landlord of the office building, not for the convenience of the workers of the office building. 
And that post-COVID, COVID, no one is going to want to commute for an hour into some massive train station somewhere in order to go up the elevator to umpteenth floor, sit at a desk for six hours and send emails. Like you just won't want to do that anymore. And that means that we need to rethink the space we have and what the space we have engenders in people. So if you want people to collaborate, where's the collaboration space? Yeah, yeah. and I think it might go... I think it might go beyond that. Uh, I think that might be the short term, the immediate fix. But I think the longer term fix is to question whether we need central business districts at all. Yeah. And whether that collaboration space uh, or and also it can be client space for client meetings or customer mm-hmm. meetings, whether that should uh, exist in the suburbs near right. where we live. Right. And life becomes working life becomes more local and the rest of our life becomes more local. Right. Chris would agree with you. Uh, and we just get, yeah, we get rid of that commute. Right. And how much more pleasant, how much more productive time right. will we have? Right. Because actually what's happening is not, not only are we commuting in to these central business districts, but our clients are commuting in as well. And, you know, I have many examples where I find that the, that the person that I'm meeting is, uh, has come an hour and a quarter um, from a place near where I live to meet me in that, in that central business district. So, yeah, I think that might be the next step of it, Wanda. I think that, um, and certainly Chris would argue, as many others have, that you're going to have more satellite offices, but what I think this calls and what you're calling to question from Mark's stories is what's the purpose of our central office? What do we want people to come there and to do? What other kinds of offices do we need? What do we want them there for? Why do we have them and how do we now design those spaces to make them fit for purpose? I think there's still a need for office-ish space, but I think it's going to change in what it looks like. And that has big implications for a whole host of things. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Mark, I look forward to hearing what he does with the New York Times facilities and the space itself. Um, let's go to a completely different leader. You referenced Marion Saltzman, somebody I have met as well, who's at Philip Morris International. Tell me about what she did and what you learned in listening to her. Well, she, she was hunkered down in, in Providence in Rhode Island and um, uh, when I first spoke to her, um, she thought she had uh, COVID and she was just going through the, 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 na- the horrible nasal test and she was awaiting her results. And what she did was she reached out with a personal note to each one of her 700 colleagues and she said, get in touch, come and speak to me. And she unleashed, uh, I think, a remarkable um, uncorporate like series of conversations with our people all around the world. So I think a colleague who was was to have been a bride but had her, her wedding cancelled, um, a colleague who was pregnant, who was all alone, um, a colleague in Italy who couldn't attend the funeral of uh, a family member who had died. And she she was amazed in the power of these conversations to bring her closer to her people and to replace the often stilted uh, work conversations with compassionate 
and helpful conversations, or hopefully helpful conversations with our colleagues. It, it, it put the, the, um, the boss and employee relationship on a totally different level. Uh, and I thought, you know, wow, there's, there's power in that um, at this moment. And, and there's a lot to, to hold on to from that. Okay. All right. I'm going to take this away from Marion's story because I think that's a really important moment to know how do you connect to people in the midst of a personal crisis for them and not just let that moment go. I watched in a number of client organizations where leaders in the early days of the pandemic were reaching out and the question, how are you doing? If you really meant it and you paused to hear an answer was well-received. But I also heard lots of stories where, for example, one person said, if you don't know that I've already lost four relatives to this disease and I couldn't attend any of their funerals, then don't ask me how I'm doing. Like, And I think one of the things that the whole crisis for me has highlighted is the importance of people believing you actually care about them as a human being in all of their life, not just as an output machine in their work level. Now, that was relatively easy to do if you paused and asked the question back in March and April of 2020. Today, it's a little harder. And today, I'm seeing that executives are fatigued themselves They're overwhelmed with their own workload and they're starting to cancel those one-to-one touch points with people because of their own self-preservation needs. And it just feels like some of the humanity is stripping away. It was great and then it just seems like it's evaporating into thin air. So what's your advice? How do we keep this sense of human connection going? Well, it's like any other change in behavior, we have to break this down to the daily habit. What are we going to do differently every day? And in these conversations that I've been talking to you about, about what do you want to hold on to uh, and what do you want to let go? Yeah, we do want to hold on to empathy and care. And we want to hold on to the agility and pace. And we probably want to hold on to the working together, the cooperation. So what we've been doing at Black Isle Group is that we've been developing some tech that sits alongside our human contact, our human coaching. Um, and it's a, it's a nudge technology. So the nudge technology, uh, the app, uh, nudges you every day to carry out um, little acts which will amount to a big change in behavior. So so let me put it this way. If um, if we look at you as a leader and we decide that, um, you know, you need to work harder on some elements of uh, empathy and connection with your employees, we might say that um, your nudge every day is to praise people three times, give three pieces of praise, listen more. So have three occasions in the day when you're listening and caring for your people Delegate more because we want you to empower your people. Have three things every day that you delegate that you wouldn't delegate before. On pace, do three things which fast track, take out bureaucracy. And we schedule them in the day for you. And the app nudges you. Now, if we do 15 things differently every day, 
suddenly we're changing as a leader. And, they, and this is the bit, and I'm fascinated in your views on this. This is the bit that takes the theory of leadership and behavioral change and puts it into practice, makes it actually happen. And it's only those small things that will amount to the big change of you as a leader and then the big change, hopefully, in the results that you get in your organization. Um, I am convinced that a few more one-to-ones and 15-minute one-to-ones, they don't have to be hours long, short bites, where you listen, where you ask and you listen, are going to make a massive difference. And I think we have to ask more than how's the work going and how are you doing. I think we have to ask, we have to know something personal and we have to ask something personal. Just listen. I think that's just a massive thing. And you're right. Changing that with two people even every day is going to lead to a change in the climate in the team. And I don't think it's complicated, but I think it's about staying on track with it. Um, My worry, if I'm really honest, is that we've all had some great insights and that there will be at some moment a rush back to the office. And that rush back to the office will cause us to forget everything we've ever thought or done differently in this moment in time. And that we'll be back to where we were before on steroids. Yeah. And, you know, the, the question that people ask me when I'm evangelizing about change is what's different this time? Because we remember after 9-11, people said that people wouldn't work in, in skyscraper office blocks and wouldn't travel in airplanes. And after the global financial crisis, people said that's the end of capitalism or the end of globalization. Well, the moment we could get back to it, we were right back to where we were before it can't happen this time it's too important you know this terrible virus has impacted on every person in the human race and we can't go back to where we were before it's um is an important reminder why hearing the stories why stopping to capture our own stories why pausing for that moment of reflection and why making a conscious decision to change a few small things in the course of your every single day is so critical. Because you're right, that's the only way we're going to see a substantive change over time. Um, I have to make one more comment before we go on break. One of that is you said earlier about uh, command and control is sort of dying, that that was one of your punchlines. Most people have a very bad image of command and control, and I want to emphasize the effort to control, not the effort to command, that I think we have way too much control mechanisms going, sometimes for good reason, more often than not, for our own security. And you talked about presenteeism, right? And so we think about presenteeism as, oh, you have to be sitting at your desk, and most leaders would say, no, you don't have to be sitting at your desk. I know better than that. I think there's a new version of presenteeism that is maybe worse, and that's email presenteeism or Slack presenteeism or whatever technology you use, and the notion that you have to respond instantaneously to whatever comes out. It's just another version of command and control and presenteeism. That's And what, what I would say about that one that is, let's just realize we can't, when our people are in their homes and their apartments uh, in their thousands, we can't command and control them. We have to give them responsibility and we have to shift to making them responsible for delivering particular results. 
And, and that will be a big shift for, for a lot of leaders. Right. So, Give your employees responsibility. Get your mindset into how do I help my team and my employees to deliver results rather than how can I look over their shoulder um, when they're not in the office beside me. Right. Yeah, or how can I make sure they're not making any mistakes? Because heaven forbid there was a mistake along the way. I'm saying that tongue in cheek. All right, fair enough. All right, this is a perfect place for a break. My guest today is Athal Duncan. He's a chair at Black Isle Group as well as an international executive coach. Um, And the book we've been talking about is Leaders in Lockdown, Inside Stories of COVID-19 and the New World of Business. I think what this calls to question, Ethel, is the need for every one of us to pause and capture the story. And the story is, what have I learned? What have I been thinking? What have I been reflecting on? And most importantly, what do I want to do differently or continue doing? And what do I want to let go of? And to be conscious and intentional about that in our companies, as well as the impact on our societies. Capture that, write it down, and then find the small behavioral changes that are going to support it. When we come back, I want to pick up on a couple of more stories and a few more actions. We'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Welcome back to the show. With me today is Athal Duncan, and the book we've been talking about is Leadership in Lockdown, Inside Stories of COVID-19 and the New World of Business. Um, as I've said, these are stories of senior executives the world over, their reflections about what the current pandemic has done to them and pause them to stop and think about in their own business and in their own lives. And the question is the things that they want to continue to do and the things that they want to let go of. And I am fascinated by these stories. So you've got some favorites. Tell me one of your absolute favorites in here. Well, I, I, I was fascinated by my conversation with Christian Lang, who's the CEO of a unicorn business um, in San Francisco called TradeShift, which is really all about digital procurement. It's taking procurement and supply chain online. It was started by three Danes in a garage in Denmark, and they moved out to San Francisco, I think, about eight or ten years ago. And when the pandemic hit, Christian was sitting there prepared for the phone never to ring again for the rest of the year, never make one sale for the rest of the year. And entirely the opposite happened. And he was contacted by so many people who asked him, how can we get digital now in our business? Um, and his, his quote, his way of describing this to me was that so many businesses had discovered that they'd only put a glossy layer of digital on top of 30 years of business crust. And they were never busier after that. And I think that's quite an interesting reflection on the corporate world, on what we have done with digital uh, in the past couple of decades. We've put great, lovely, fancy buttons onto our iPhones. We've automated some stuff. But have we really used digital um, to the best impact in our businesses? And have we really used it to solve the big human issues? And my hope for digital uh, as we come out of the crisis is that the next generation, the next era of it will solve many of our issues with public health perhaps, uh, or will lead to cures for cancer. Uh, we'll start to solve some of the real societal issues. Um, we love having our iPhones, but have they really made the, the human race a better thing? In ways and in ways not. I think that's always the case. <laughs> yeah, we don't, talk, we don't talk about social media. <laughs> no, we won't right on this one at the moment. Okay. But um, I think you're right. As I watch a lot of clients, they have been in the last three years, let's say, waving the flag of digital, how important digital is. We, and the phrase is we are going digital in one form or another. They're all saying the same thing. Yet, when you look at what changes in the processes, what's changed in the customer interactions, what's changed in the supply chain, what's changed in the business management, what's changed in the core processes, not much. Not no, much. And, and, you know, much of the resistance to change is not technical. The resistance to change is the human resistance to change. You know, we, we could have been educating people in this virtual way we could have been saving the, the planet by not traveling as much, by um, doing virtual meetings and virtual events. We could have been doing all this 
but it was the human reluctance to change that has stopped us doing this uh, in recent years. And it was the necessity of lockdown um, that accelerated a lot of that virtual stuff uh, by probably 10 or 15 years in a summer. Yeah. I think that's true. I still think we have a long ways to go. Um, Jeff Schwartz writes about work disrupted, and his whole notion is that we become super person, super job, super job and super team. And the idea is instead of thinking about technology or robots of taking away your job, I want you to think about technology, digital, robots, whatever the technology is, as giving you a superpower you couldn't have had before. And therefore, unleashing human potential. And that kind of excitement that could be generated by, I want superpower. I'm all keen on that one. Um, If you think about it that way, I think we can start to be creative and how we really rethink our businesses and make not just digital, but the technology sort of an enabler in this business. And the, the other technology story that I really liked was Will Ahmed, who's the CEO of a company called Whoop. Yes, uh, in Boston, and Whoop, Whoop is uh, a wearable tech, and you know there are quite a lot of these uh, um, kinds of wearable tech around now. But where where he comes into it in a very interesting way, and he started working with elite sports people, but now increasingly works with executives of large corporations. And his thing is, we should approach um, big moments in our business life like an Olympian would approach the Olympics. And he doesn't mean that we should be lifting weights, you'd be pleased to know, or running up, uh, sprinting up and down hills. It means we should consider how we turn up on the day in the best mental and physical state to present ourselves in the best way and to make the best decisions. So if you had a big earnings call, what are you going to do in the four days uh, leading up to that? What What is your sleep going to be? What is your recovery going to be? How can you be sharp as a tack? And he sees his whoop technology um, as a way of um, helping executives uh, to do that. Uh, because sleep um, is something that in the macho executive past, um, we have not understood the power of sleep or the damage of not having sleep in crazy uh, business lives. Right. The Andrew, the uh, Will Ahmed and the Whoop story is a really fascinating story. It's a great one in the book, too. I noticed that one as well. Um, Andrew McDonald at PQ Perform has inspired me, and in fact, collectively, we've been doing this, to think about fatigue, something that a lot of people are experiencing at the moment, and to recognize that fatigue is just inadequate recovery on a day-to-day basis. And what it does is build sustained stress. And what we know sustained stress does is bring out the worst of leadership behaviors. That's where I can't show that humanity because I don't have anything left to show humanity with. So I canceled the meeting as an example, or I get too sharp with somebody, or I'm overly critical and I forget to do the praise. Um, And that my belief is that we have to start talking about this recovery and how we build recovery in on in the course of the day in order to keep our performance sharp, our mental acuity, our social acuity, our emotional acuity sharp every day, and we perform all day in a really strong way. 
And I think that is a game changer for teams that will go that route. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on board with Will as a result. Yeah. And for me, that is one of the big insights coming out of COVID. I think we were there before. I think people were already pressed to the limits. But what COVID has shown to me is that our only prior ways of recovery were to go on a two-week vacation. Absolutely. And that's not enough. We can't sustain, Absolutely. We can't sustain yeah. that way. It's yeah, not, um, corporate life was okay if we could get away to an island yeah. every now and again and, you know, recover from it by having a week or 10 days uh, in the sun, relaxing on the beach um, and, and, and doing this recovery. And yeah. that's a completely, I mean, you can imagine an athlete would never think about um, that way of existence that that recovery has to be again we're back to you know our daily habits that has to come back into into our daily habits and the other we, we celebrated that um, we weren't traveling and that had given us more time but what we didn't realize I think for quite a few months in lockdown is that when we traveled we actually had time to think to pause to reflect whether that was on your commute or whether you were, you know, flying around the world, there's there's big parts of time there where people don't really contact you, um, and you can think about how did I do at that meeting? How am I going to approach that next meeting? Um, you know, am I dealing with this person in the right way? We've taken that out of our world. We need to replace it every day, like you're saying, with the with the walk with the meditation, with the reflection, whatever it is, with the, the, the swim, if you're lucky enough to, to be able to swim uh, where you live, all, all these things. Um, we really miss the reflection that time that travel allowed us. Well, I think we miss the variety. I mean, part of what you're saying is doing one thing, the same thing all day without any breaks is a good way to burn yourself out. So we don't have any we don't have any change in the variety of the day, and yeah. I think that is wearing people out too. Yeah. All right, I want to get one more story in, which is um, let's talk about David Bean at the care home. Yeah. So um, David, um, it, this is a, a heart wrenching story, really, and it probably reflects hundreds of thousands of heart wrenching stories like it in the pandemic. And it was quite um, grounding for me because, you know, I thought this was tough, but my issues paled into insignificance. You know, I was trying to make sure that the finances of the businesses that I'm involved in saw it through. And I was trying to care for the people in the businesses that I worked in. But he he led um, the UK's largest care home company Mm -hmm. and a thousand people died. A thousand people died um, in the first hundred days of lockdown, including many of his co-workers. Um, and David, the way that he and his colleagues had remained resilient throughout it uh, was staggering. And I, I think that story was repeated with um, essential workers and care workers in, in every town and city um, in the world. And if you look at what's going on in, in India, Um, at the moment. I asked him what was his biggest learning, his biggest observation from the crisis. And he said, 
It was that he had seen leadership at every level in his business. Leadership was not something that was worn in the title. It was the people in the kitchens. It was the people on reception in his businesses who had shown the greatest care, compassion, and humanity for the people that they were working with. And they were putting their lives and their families' lives at risk every day. Um, so he, he, he concluded one of his conversations with me, uh, and a very humble gentleman, by saying that leadership is not what you do in the good times. Leadership is judged on what you do in the bad times. And did you find, did he find also that he created empowerment for those people, that he allowed them to create more initiatives, show care and compassion, or did they just take those initiatives and go on their own? They took the initiatives and they went on their own, but the, one of the, the most difficult factors there was because um, the regulatory response to it was changing on a daily basis. I think in that um, across the summer, there were 60 entirely different sets of regulations and guidelines which had to be rolled out across hundreds of care homes. So you can imagine what a logistical challenge that is, but you can imagine what the impact of that is on the people on the front line. Right. who on 60 occasions were told, you've not got to do it this way now, you've got to do it that way. Um, uh, so I think that's, that's very, very tough and, uh, and confusing for people. Um, now, if you, are, if you are kind about that, um, you would say, well, the regulations had to change because we were learning so much about the virus uh, and what it did as we went on. Um, and I'm sure there's a huge element of that, but I suspect that there's a huge element of uh, unhelpful bureaucracy in those regulatory changes too. I read a new one today, um, dysfunction tax, that yeah. we should go around and calculate the cost of the dysfunction in our organizations for the products that we generate. I, that's an interesting idea around bureaucracy. All right, I love your statement that leadership is not what you go in the good times, it's what you do in the bad times. That is where you see leadership in action. I think just about everybody who's ever studied this would see that. And that it does come sometimes from the person who's nominally in charge, who does an amazing thing. And sometimes it comes from the people at the very bottom of the organization who say, why don't we do this? And it comes from their heart, Wanda, doesn't it? Because they just know that is the right thing to do now. Yeah. You know, they, they don't have to think about it and, and God bless them. They don't need executive coaches like us to tell them. They just know at that moment, this is the right thing uh, to do. And, um, you know, that is a heartwarming thing about humanity as well. It's revealed through the crisis. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing. It reminds me of um, the Cathay Pacific days in the first SARS crisis in Hong Kong, if you remember, it shut down travel in and out of Asia, and that is Cathay Specific's business, and they were on the verge of going out of business completely, so there was no cash, and the banks were unwilling to loan to them, and it was in that company, the people at the front lines coming up with all sorts of incredibly creative ideas to save 
a few dollars here and a few cents there and a few whatever other currency there, all of them small, but all of them added up in astronomical ways. So, you know, again, you see the leadership that's at the bottom of the organization if you just don't try to squelch it in the process. Okay. All right. Now, I know you've taken all of these wonderful, very powerful stories and converted this down to sort of your seven traits, which I guess in many ways is the punchline out of all of the stories, the seven things we need to remember to do and to practice day in and day out. So tell me about the seven traits. So, you know, we, we love a model, don't we, in uh, coaching? Yeah. I think I have a book on the shelf over here that says uh, 98 different models of uh, executive coaching. Um, but we're trying to cut through, aren't we? We're trying to cut through and help people with a framework for how they're going to get from uh, here to there. You know, that uh, thing that what got you here won't get you there. Um, so we, we came up with the, the leading model. And it's based on interviews with coaches and really asking coaches, um, what are you coaching on? Um, and their answers tell us what stops people getting to the next level, what helps people get to the next level. And they, we spell leading. And the L in leading is looking like a leader. Um, not physically, but the, you know, physical is um, a, a small element of it. But what's your mindset? Do you think, feel, and act? like a great leader would look like in this business or in this sector. The E is uh, for empathy, empowerment, and emotional intelligence. We've talked a lot about that um, in this interview. The A is awareness. And uh, as all executive coaches know, uh, it all starts with self-awareness. Do you know yourself? And we we often find that people don't know um, what they're doing, never mind why they're doing it. So, uh, you know, we get into self-awareness as a starting point. D is for delivery because we've got to get tough things done, haven't we? The I is for impact. And that is really about the communication styles of leaders. Can you inspire? Can you be memorable? Can you communicate with clarity, brevity and impact? The N is for nurturing because great leaders nurture the people around them. They get the best out of them. They see what the people are best at. They put them in the positions where they can they can do the best. And the M is uh, sorry the uh, G. the the N is for nurturing. Yeah. And sorry, the G is for game changing. I couldn't spell leading there for a moment. <laughs> the G, the final one, is for game changing. Uh, and you know we talked a lot about whether the G should be for growth. But what we're trying to look for in our leaders is leaders who can really change the game, not deliver incremental change, but change the game. And what what we've been doing in in our coaching is we work through um, with our coaches, how do they see themselves and how do other people see themselves against these seven traits? How do we think, how do they think they need to improve? And then how do we, how do we bridge the gap? And it's a really effective way, particularly of starting um, coaching conversations. It is an interesting, I mean, I think those are common themes that all of us that coach would see and would recognize as one of those seven is a barrier, 
um, whether people are just not thinking radically enough about the game-changing effort that they're doing or whether they're being slow on moving their talent or nudging their talent to be game-changing or whether they, I mean, I am coaching people at the moment who it seems like They've got the opportunity, but they're hesitating to really grab it. And I think that's that sense of looking like, feeling like. Like I'm coaching one person at the moment who is maybe doesn't have the exact title that is desired, you know, the perfect positioning, but at the same time is the best the organization has got. And it's really down to grabbing the moment and doing it yourself you know like saying okay i'm gonna leave and that's that's all about um self-doubt which we all have and and it's all about the imposter syndrome uh in lots of varying degrees which, which we all have the people who don't have a little element of the imposter syndrome uh, are the people that you should really worry about because they're the they're the dangerous narcissists of the world who get our large corporations uh, and our countries uh, into great difficulty. So my my um, conversation with people um, is that's good. You've got a bit of imposter syndrome, you know. <laughs> Let let's just let's just um, talk that through and let's see how we can deal with that because yeah. everyone who has walked in 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 this path before has had self-doubt and has had imposter syndrome. So why is it that as human beings, we tend to believe that I'm the only one who has imposter syndrome when you and I both know that's not true from our coaches and the research says it's not true either. So why do you think we have self-doubt? We compare our inside to what we see of other people's outsides, Right. Mm-hmm. That that is why we have self doubt, because we see these great leaders on on television or you know at conferences, and we see what they project outside. Now, you know, I may project some great confidence um, outside. I'm I'm pretty relaxed chatting to you. It's quite interesting how more relaxed you are when you're doing these things from your home than maybe in a television studio or a radio studio or in a big conference hall. But I churn. You know, <laughs> we, we all churn. And these great leaders are, are no doubt churning um, at all these moments too. But, but we sit there and we think, wow, look, look how cool that woman is or look how cool that guy is. Um, but don't compare um, their outside to your inside. It's great. Uh, I love you know, that, that one. Fabulous statement. That's a good place to start. I also think we look at people who have polished their game because they've been in that role for a long time. And we compare ourselves to them as, you know, sort of more progressed when we're just beginning the journey. And so that's unfair. I'm just beginning the journey at this stage. I'm going to not be as skilled at it or as comfortable with it as somebody who's been doing it for five or 10 years. So we, there's a maturity, I don't know, a growth process that happens too. There is. And, you know, doesn't it help people when we say that um, in this compassionate leadership that we've seen in the crisis, it is really good to tell people what you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to have all the answers. Yeah. Now, you know, prior to this crisis, we thought, well, if we're the boss of this corporation or this company, people expect us to have all the answers. Well, they don't. 
Right. They don't. And the authentic you is the person that says, I don't know about this, but we've got people in this company who do know about it. What do you think, guys? All right. That's a perfect lead into the title of my book. You can't know it all. I'll just leave it at that point. That's fabulous. (laughs) All right. Last question for you. Athal, what takes you out of your comfort zone and what's your secret to success? Whoa, what takes me out of my comfort zone? Um, I, I, I think a, a lot takes me out of my comfort zone. And um, I, I kind of realize that it's only by making yourself uncomfortable that you're going to progress, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what is the secret to my success? Um, hey, I, I don't not too sure about that. I think it's maybe at some stage, probably um, later in my life than uh, would have been helpful for my career, uh, I realize many of the things which I've talked to you about uh, this evening. Okay. Uh, and particularly through that leading model and the awareness and the, the self-awareness. And, uh, you know, um, I, I've learned, as uh, all people do, by, by making mistakes uh, and by hopefully having a degree of bounce-back ability. I, I was coaching a, or helping a family friend last night who's a, a relatively young gentleman, and he was doing an important interview um, today. Um, and I was doing what, what, what you would normally say, be yourself and, uh, you know, talk to these people on the same level. Uh, but I, I, I finished the conversation by saying, just realize that if you don't get this, it's not a problem. Yeah. Because we all do 10 or 20 of these uh, before one lands. Uh, it's all about the way that um, you bounce back. All right. That's perfect. I think recognizing that we don't compare our insides to somebody else's outsides and that we all make mistakes along the way. That is the growth in the journey. And that sort of takes some of the anxiety away from it, I think, as well. My guest today, Athal Duncan, the book that we've been talking about is Leadership in Lockdown, Leaders in Lockdown, the Inside Stories of COVID-19 and the New World of Business. I think this is a critical moment for every one of us, regardless the size of our leadership, whether at the bottom of the barrel or at the very top of the heap, to pause and say, what is it that I want to carry forward with me from this time? What's the reflection? What do I want to keep and keep doing? And what is it that I want to stop doing or to change, not to do any longer? I think if we don't do that, then we miss what this moment was really about. So with all, thank you for being a guest. And if you'd like to know more about this, then check out our new subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com and certainly join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.